And now, a reading from the scripture. Today it comes from Mark 14, 1 through 11. It was two days before the Passover of the festival of unleavened bread. The chief priests and the scribes were looking for a way to arrest Jesus by stealth and kill him. For they said, not during the festival, or there may be a riot among the people. While he was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, as he sat at the table, a woman came with an alabaster jar of very costly ointment of nard, and she broke open the jar and poured the ointment on his head. But some were there who said to one another in anger, Why was the ointment wasted in this way? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and the money given to the poor. And they scolded her. But Jesus said, Let her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has performed a good service for me. For you always have the poor with you, and you can show kindness to them whenever you wish. But you will not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for its burial. Truly I tell you, wherever the good news is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in remembrance of her. Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went to the chief priests in order to betray, betray him to them. When they heard it, they were greatly pleased and promised to give him money. So he began to look for an opportunity to betray him. We are here still in our series called The Last Week, this time where we, we take uh, the last week of, of Jesus' ministry, these last seven days, and we try and make sense of them. So much of the gospel, so much of, rec- of what we have recorded is these last seven days, which take place in Jerusalem, in the temple at this critical time of Passover, the celebration of liberation that takes place in Jesus's day while under occupation, this tension of the God who liberates and the people who are liberated and the occupation of Rome and the experience of real oppression. That tension of the kingdom that has already come and been fulfilled by the God who liberates and this experience of suffering under empire is very real. And it's something that I think that we can relate to. On Wednesday, they start off again by mentioning these crowds, the crowds with Jesus that the, uh, the religious authorities are afraid of. They want Jesus out of the way, but they're very afraid to try and do that when these crowds are present. And I want to contrast that with a, a really common and popular way that the crowds are portrayed in Christian narrative, um, in modern Christian narrative. There's this thing that... that uh, gets characterized as like the crowds that turn on him. If you've ever heard the, the idea of the crowds shouting, crucify him, crucify him, it's often portrayed as though on Sunday the crowds were like, yeah, Jesus, and then on, on Friday they were like, crucify him. And there's no real explanation as to how this could have happened other than ah, fickle humanity. And I think that that's not a very faithful reading of this text, and neither do the scholars who inform this sermon that actually those crowds were different, and that the crowds who were with Jesus on Sunday were with him on Monday as he was causing a riot in the temple, flipping over tables, and again with him on Tuesday as he was was challenging the religious and theological authority 
of the chief priests and scribes. And now on Wednesday, as Jesus is with his people, as this woman does this incredible act of love, and as Judas moves to betray him, the crowds are still with him. And the authorities are afraid of the crowds. There is this open question that, you know, why didn't they betray Jesus? I'm sorry, why didn't they arrest Jesus in the middle of the day? Why did they need a traitor? Why did they need Judas to betray him to lead them to Jesus in the middle of the night? And the answer is the crowds. They were afraid of the crowds who were always with Jesus, who would have been uh, rioting, according to their own account, if they had come after him. And so the authorities need someone to turn on Jesus. They need Judas. Now, a few weeks ago, we did a a one-off sermon called No Stupid Questions, where we invited community members to ask their burning questions about the Bible and Jesus. And one of the questions that came up that we didn't have an opportunity to engage was about Judas. It was basically, did Judas need to do what he did? Did the narrative arc of this story require a traitor? Is it not Judas's fault? Was he just doing the thing that he was sort of predestined to do? There are a lot of different people who have different takes on this. My answer is no. Judas did not need to betray, to betray Jesus in order for Jesus to fulfill his role. You see, that's premised on this idea that atonement, uh, that is the way that we become one with God again. In fact, the word atonement is kind of a smash-up of at-one-ment. So atonement is about the idea of humanity and God becoming one again. And the idea of the cross being essential to atonement has many different interpretations. Some people say, it's a very common and popular interpretation in our day, that Jesus had to die to satisfy God's bloodlust, that God needed someone to die. It should have been humanity, and instead of humanity, it was Jesus. And that is how we become one with God again. But that really seems to fly in the face of everything that I know about Jesus and everything that I believe the Gospels portray about God's character, that God actually wants something else from us. And in fact, I think one of the greatest elements of atonement at one mint is Jesus coming down incarnate as a human being in the first place. That what it means for us to be at one with God requires God to be with us. And so God came. But God knows who we are and knows our struggle, knows the sin that has ripped us to pieces, knows the violence embedded in that. And so God's willingness to face death, even the cross, is a part of that declaration of love, that God comes to us even in the face of death and chaos and destruction, knowing that he could die. Jesus comes to be with us. That is fundamental to atonement, at-one-ment, that we can only become one with God because of God's willingness to come be with us even in the face of rejection and death. And that resurrection, that defeat of death, that offering of life that cannot be killed, That is what brings us in line with God to say that no death, no destruction, no fear, no scarcity can stand between us and God, not even the cross, not even torture and public execution. And so if Jesus faces the cross as an act of bringing us together with God, Jesus doesn't need anyone to betray him in order to get there. But it is, as God knows, inevitable 
that humanity isn't prepared for this, that coming to be with us will still be a bloody and terrifying ordeal. So no, Judas didn't need to betray Jesus, but God knew that he would. And if he didn't, someone would. And so we have Judas, who Mark just calls over and over again, one of the twelve. This designation, one of the twelve, it means that Judas isn't special. It means that Judas wasn't particularly evil. According to Mark, the Gospel of Mark, Judas was just one of the twelve. And the twelve were people who loved Jesus, who had followed him a long time, who had given up everything in their lives to follow Jesus. There are other scriptures that uh, imagine why Judas betrayed Jesus. John implies that Judas was a thief and that he was sort of money hungry. But some of these imaginations are pretty shallow. They're a little unconvincing to me, honestly. If Judas had given up his whole life to be with and follow Jesus, why now would he give up Jesus for some cash? There are other parts of the tradition that interpret, that find meaning. There's a tradition called Midrash. Midrash is an ancient Jewish Jewish tradition where uh, texts were interpreted and reimagined in different ways. The biblical scholar Will Gaffney, uh, who is brilliant, and you should really uh, look up her work if you have any interest in Hebrew scholarship, Um, but she says, they reimagine, they, that is the Midrash, they reimagine dominant narrative readings while crafting new ones to stand alongside, not replace, former readings. Midrash also asks questions of the text. Sometimes it provides answers. Sometimes it leaves the reader to answer the questions themselves. And so we have this tradition of Midrash, which says we can tell stories alongside the text to help us make sense of it, to understand truth. And much of the Midrash, the the classic Midrash, is writings um, that are now ancient. But there are forms of modern Midrash that have really informed my faith. And one of my favorite uh, Midrashic uh, texts, stories, when it comes to Judas, the most important for me probably, is the 1970s rock opera, Jesus Christ Superstar. (laughs) If you haven't seen it, I highly recommend it. If you've got extra time, you know, now's now's the time. No time like the present. I would take Jesus Christ Superstar over the the passion of the Christ any day. Um, But Jesus Christ Superstar tells this story, reimagines it from the perspective of Judas. And Judas is this kind of tragic hero, uh, a man with good intentions, sensible intentions that lead to horrific and tragic ends. So in the beginning, it it opens in the desert, and there's this uh, very compelling, very 70s rock um, number by Judas, who is singing about where he's come to be in following Jesus. The song is called Heaven on Their Minds, and he's getting frustrated with Jesus and with Jesus' followers, saying that they've gotten too caught up, that they've sort of drunk the Kool-Aid too much, and they've lost uh, their sense of what's real. In this song, he says, Listen, Jesus, don't you care for your race? Don't you see we must keep in our place? We are occupied. Have you forgotten how put down we are? He goes on, I am frightened by the crowd, for we are getting much too loud, and they'll crush us 
if we go too far. Later in the song, he says, please remember that I want us to live, but it's sad to see our chances weakening with every hour. And you see this Judas who is faithful, who wants to believe, who has been following Jesus, who believes in the message, but who is frightened by how it is spiraling and where it could go now that it is coming into contact with Rome. They are approaching Jerusalem, and Judas, of all people, is very aware of the political element to what Jesus is doing. And so Judas is saying, we're getting too loud, we're getting too big, they're going to come crush us, they see us as a threat. Jesus wouldn't be the first to be executed in that way for that exact reason. John the baptizer, who baptized Jesus and who, um, according to scriptures, prepared the way for Jesus, he's executed by Herod. And we actually have records, historical records of this. The early historian Josephus writes about the execution of John the baptizer, saying that Herod became alarmed by how how large and how fervent John's crowds were. And for that reason, Herod came to murder John the Baptist and, and sent him to be executed. They're, they're afraid. And, and Herod was a Jewish religious leader, but he was doing so. He was murdering um, John the Baptist out of fear of the Romans. And so you've got these kind of, uh, we call them the collaborator class, the high authorities in the Jewish um, religious structure who were collaborating with the authorities of Rome. But the Jewish uh, folks in power at that time were tasked with keeping everybody chill. That was their main job. And if, if they didn't do it, Rome was going to come in with an iron fist and kill everyone. And so Herod, even though he murdered John the Baptist, was presumably doing so to keep the Jewish people safe from an even greater retaliation from Rome. You see the way that, that Judas could come to these conclusions, could say, I want us to live. What are you doing? You're being reckless. You're facing this empire. Stop. Stop going so hard against these powers that be that could come down on us at any moment. In Scripture, in the Gospel of John, there's a passage of people speculating about Jesus, and they say, if we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and destroy both our holy place and our nation. Judas is not alone in feeling this way. But that passage from John, if we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and destroy us, the people saying that are the chief priests and the Pharisees, the collaborator class, and so we see Judas, who has given up so much, who is so invested in this idea of anti-empire, so invested in this new creation that God has on offer, losing his faith that it is possible and buying back into the status quo and the narrative of domination, empire, and collaboration. He's living in scarcity. And the scripture says he began looking for an opportunity to betray Jesus. And as tragic as this is, on the face of it, he's not wrong. Judas is the reasonable one here. Jesus is being reckless. Jesus is going to get himself killed. And we actually know enough to know that that is literally true. Judas's anxiety is founded. And the Romans will come to crush rebellions. And, 70, and in a few years after Jesus' death, 
They do, and they destroy the temple. And so as reasonable readers, we could read this and call it a day. Word of caution, stock up on toilet paper, shutter your windows, grab that Purell. That is the reasonable thing to do. But we don't follow Judas. We follow Jesus. Juxtaposed with this, Mark tells another story. And it shows how if Judas, the reasonable one, is wrong, then maybe the thing that appears so foolish might be the right way. And so we have this incredible story of the woman. We don't get her name. We don't know much about her. We won't mix this up with other texts and other stories. There are different stories in different Gospels um, that have similar elements. But we will let this story in Mark stand by itself. And in this story, the woman, who is not like Judas, is not one of the twelve. If Judas represents the logic of empire and status quo and scarcity, the woman represents a logic of femininity and rebellion, a challenge to the structures that would marginalize her. This story takes place in Bethany, which means the house of the poor. And it features a woman doing something very intimate with Jesus in a public place. And so it violates all sorts of norms in really fun and exciting ways. The woman has an alabaster jar of very costly ointment. We could think of this as a, a sort of perfume or anointing oil. It would be for very special occasions. The text calls it very costly, is, is uh, really explicitly clear, not, not just that it is expensive, but how expensive it is. They cite it as, as being worth 300 denarii. Well, one denarius is about one day's wage for a laborer. So for a laborer, this jar was worth almost a year's wages. This kind of oil, this fancy, beautiful oil in these kinds of jars, the nard um, is the specific ingredient that makes it so special. It's mentioned elsewhere in scripture, in the Song of Songs. Song of Songs predates any of these texts, and it's a sort of ancient erotic poetry. And if you didn't think there was an erotic poetry in the Bible, well, with all your free time, look up that biblical porn. Song of Songs, sometimes it's listed as Song of Solomon. It's this beautiful uh, series of poems spoken from the perspective largely of a, of a young woman to her, speaking to her lover, her partner, the person who, depending on your interpretation, she's betrothed to, some people say married to, I think not. But we have this young woman who is speaking love and intimacy to her partner. And she mentions this nard a couple of times. She mentions it often in relationship to her body, this perfume, this richness. It's supposed to evoke a sense of embodied material reality, these, these uh, scents that are, that are rich and vast and lavish, extravagant, and this sort of intimate offering of oneself to a lover. There's a sense of longing there and of offering the fullness of oneself. And so this is what this woman comes with, is this alabaster jar, this very costly jar of, of a perfume that is only ever referenced in scripture elsewise as being for incredible intimacy. And she shatters it. 
She shatters it and she pours it over his head. The scriptures, uh, if you kind of dissect the words, there's an element of flowing, that it flows over Jesus, that there is just such an excess of this incredible perfume that it, it pours over him. And she has this moment of intimacy and ecstasy with Jesus where she is just with him, offering this incredible gift. And the crowd around her starts losing it. One interpretation says they loudly berated her. They scolded her. These, this crowd was likely men, practical men, who were saying, what are you doing? What are you doing? They note the cost of the perfume and reasonably say this could have been sold and the money given to the poor. They call her action a waste. And you know what? They're right. They are logical. She took a year's worth of wages and poured it over Jesus' head. But this extravagant, excessive, lavish love that she shares with Jesus in this moment, Jesus doesn't call it a waste. In fact, Jesus rebukes the crowd, those logical voices, and says, leave her alone. What's your problem? You don't even understand. He says that she is doing something good for him. It's sort of a contrast, a little dig of like, what are you doing? She has done a good service for him. Then he says something that is one of the most widely misinterpreted verses of the Bible, and so we have to pause to unpack it. He says, you will always have the poor with you. Now, he's actually referencing another scripture when he says this. He's referencing Deuteronomy chapter 15, verses 1 through 11, which is called the poor law. It includes remission of debt and other provisions for taking care of one another. And actually that section says that if you follow these structural, you are, you are commanded to follow these structural um, provisions so that there will be no one in need among you. And so Jesus isn't saying, oh, don't worry about the poor, they'll always be there, forget about taking care of one another. Jesus is actually saying, hey, you're supposed to care for the poor every day. You're supposed to structure this into the way that you live. The whole world is supposed to be oriented towards making sure everyone has what they need. Do not use that as an excuse not to lavish. Do not use that as an excuse to judge someone for the way they show their love. Do not pit the poor against celebration and joy. He's saying that we are always called to give one another and we are called to do more. That we are called to care for one another, but we are also called to be present to one another. He says, what she had, she did. What she had, she did. He celebrates her offering of herself and what she had. She anointed him. Some say that she was the first believer and therefore the first leader in the church. That when Jesus was foretelling his death, the practical people around him would say, no, 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 here are the provisions, here is our plan, this will never happen. But she believed. She believed that Jesus was facing death and that it was part of his love for humanity. And so, as he faced death, she anointed him, a ritual for the dead, to be met with love as they go into burial. She understood something that no one else in the room did with their logic and their plans and their caution and their contingencies. The woman lavished her love on God, on Jesus, 
the man in front of her who was facing death. She lavished her love on the person in her presence who was both human and divine as they proclaimed resurrection together. The woman took what she had and she gave it away, not for reward or even utility, but because giving of herself was an act of love and beauty that transformed a moment of fear into one of intimacy and adoration. I love the phrase bread and roses. It comes from the labor movement in the United States. It's a song and a poem and a rallying cry of those organizing for a better world. But the idea of bread and roses juxtaposes survival with living. It says that we need both. That we cannot merely survive. Jesus himself, himself says humanity cannot live on bread alone. But on the very word of God, the word who is Jesus, Jesus who is celebration, Jesus who turns water into wine, Jesus who upends things, not just so that we can all have utility, but so that we can all have life and love and joy. And what is survival for if not for life? And what is life for if not for love? We can get so caught up in surviving, in planning, in contingency plans that we sacrifice living. This woman was truly alive, truly among the living with Jesus in that moment. Y'all, we need bread. We need toilet paper. We need Purell. We need social distancing. We need mutual aid networks. We need plans and caution, but we need roses too. We need beauty and lavish love. We need extravagance. We need an outpouring of ourselves. And what did she do when she had her rose? What did she do with her alabaster jar full of rich ointment? She shattered it and poured it out for the person in front of her, for the divine in her midst. She gave it away. So yes, stay in your homes for yourself and for one another but find your roses and then give them away. Will you pray with me? God of beauty, God of power and might and creativity and imagination, you shower roses upon us. You lavish us with your love. Let us not lose your extravagance in our survival plans. Let us not get so caught up in our fear that we sacrifice your kingdom. God, you have prepared for us a better way. Inspire in us creative resistance, not only with plans, but with roses, not only with aid, but with beauty and art and joy. God, direct us to the beauty in our midst and help us boldly and abundantly give it away. Amen. I invite you to sit in this moment to write down any thoughts you have to comment to one another and to take in what God 
has given to you this morning. now, Zao family, we've come to the time in our service called Offering, where having heard from God, having received from God and from one another, we offer ourselves back to God and to one another. There are so many ways to offer yourself in this moment. I mentioned the Milwaukee Mutual Aid Network in the sermon. Um, we'll drop it in comments. If you're able to help one another out, that's a way that you can offer yourself you can offer yourself through offering your prayer requests and your contact cards at zaomke.org connect. You can always uh, offer yourself financially to God and to this community, uh, which is honestly going to go through some hard times uh, during this. And so if you want to offer your support to create um, different ways to be community uh, and offer yourself financially, you can do that at zaomke.org give. Whatever your offering is, Whatever your roses are, give them away in this time. Give them away with joy and prepare your hearts to receive roses from one another. As we hear the music behind us, we remember the God who makes a way, makes a way when there is no way, makes a way with abundance, with bread for all and roses overflowing. I send you forth with this blessing. May you go and may you stay in abundance. May you be children of the Most High God who creates and renews and reimagines. May your life overflow and may you give yourself away. Love y'all. <laughs>